Good morning. First Corinthians chapter 15, verses 17 through 2858 reads, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of God to God, the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be in all. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. The word of the Lord. Well, you know, in our world, Easter is a time of celebration. It's a time of lilies and mimosa brunch, and especially it's a time to be positive, right? No negativity. Let's be positive. I hate to, you know, be a downer this morning, but the gospel is sad news before it's glad news. So I want to begin with a question. Have you ever experienced death? And I don't just mean the death of a loved one. I mean the death of anything good or beautiful. Let me tell you a story. Uh, my mom spent the last two years of her life in hospitals and nursing homes. She had a series of blood clots and strokes that left her unable to move or speak. But her mind was still there. It was incredibly sad. 
The only way we could communicate was she, she was just barely able to lift one hand enough to point to letters on an alphabet chart. So even in the midst of the sadness, we were still able to communicate a little bit. I remember one time in particular, I was hanging out with her in the nursing home, and we were spending time. I looked in her eyes, and I said, Mom, I'm so glad to be here. And she lifted up her hand, pointed out some letters, and spelled out, you and me. That was one of the sweetest moments of connection I've ever had with my mom. Now, fast forward. The last time I ever saw my mom alive, I knew going in that it was probably going to be the last time I would ever see her. I remember walking into the nursing home, and I was just hoping for one more of those you and me moments with my mom. And at first, everything was going well. She was alert. She was engaged. We were connecting. But then there was some disturbance with her medical equipment. Alerts and buzzers were going off, and it disturbed and unsettled her so much that she just kind of slumped over with a vacant look in her eyes. And I was trying to get her back. Hey, mom, come on, you and me. And a nurse walked in and said, yeah, she's going to be unresponsive for a while. In the meantime, I had an airplane to catch. My last memory of my mom was seeing her slumped over lifelessly like one of the toys in Toy Story when a human comes in the room. I still sometimes weep when I think about that because I didn't just lose my mom. I lost my last moment with her. I felt robbed of this beautiful thing I had dreamed for. Have you ever experienced anything like that? Life is death because life is filled with good things, beautiful things that end and we can never get them back. What do we do about that? And if you believe in God or some kind of supreme being, the bigger question is, what does God do about that? We're concluding a series today in which we've been asking the question, who is Jesus? This morning's passage is all about the resurrection. Let's take a look and ask three questions. What is death? What does God do about it? And what does it mean for us? Okay? What is death? What does God do about it? And what does that mean for us? First, what is death? The Apostle Paul is writing this letter to a community of Christians in the ancient city of Corinth. Now, in that culture, they believed that when you die, you get rid of the body and you get transferred into a purely spiritual disembodied realm, which is still the dominant idea today. You see that here in the West. We talk about going to heaven. You see it in Eastern spirituality, which is all about um, escaping the illusion of this material world. It's all the same idea. But here in this passage, Paul is offering the Corinthians and us a radically different picture of reality, and it begins with a radically different picture of death. So in the middle of this passage, Paul says, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. When Paul mentions Adam, he's tapping into the storyline of the Bible. He's basically saying, you need to understand what kind of story you're in. Here's why this is important for us. Our answer to the question, what is death, depends on our answer to the question, what kind of story are we in? So what kind of story are we in? There are hundreds of different worldviews, different stories about what kind of world we're in, but most of them fall into three main families 
or buckets. The first and the one that dominates here in the modern West is the story of naturalism. The naturalist story says that um, this world is the result of a random, unguided, natural process. There is no God. This world is all there is. And when you die, it's lights out. Nothing to be frightened of. The naturalist story says this world is natural. Therefore, death is natural. Another huge story in our world is um, the Eastern story. I mentioned that a bit ago. That would include things like Buddhism, um, Vedic traditions, popularly known as Hinduism, or New Age spirituality. The Eastern story says this world is an illusion. It's all part of the karmic cycle. And, and the goal is to evolve our consciousness enough that we can escape or be liberated up out of the illusion of this material world. So the Eastern story says this world is an illusion. Therefore, death, or what we call death, is also an illusion. Now, both of these are serious stories, and they're worth serious consideration, especially if you're exploring faith. But there is another story. The biblical story says that this world is the result of a transcendent God who created it to be a place of goodness, beauty, and love. But if that's true, there's a problem. Because when we look at this world, yes, we see goodness, but we also see evil. We see beauty, but we also see ugliness. We see love, but we also see hatred and division. So if the biblical story is true, then what's up with that? Well, here's what's up. The biblical story in many ways is like a fairy tale. Now, let me explain what I mean by that or what that really means. In our world, we typically use the phrase fairy tale in two different ways. One is to say that somebody's life is going perfect. We say, oh, their life is such a fairy tale. The other way we use the phrase is to describe um, a ridiculous myth or legend. Emphasis on the word ridiculous. But both of those views are deeply mistaken about what a fairy tale really is. A fairy tale is not a perfect life or a childish myth. A fairy tale is a world where goodness, beauty, and love are real but breakable. In a fairy tale, the danger of losing these things is real because our responsibility is real. You know how in our culture we really make a big deal about free choice, right? I mean, choice is everything. Well, the Bible gives you a story where that choice is real. And the history, the whole history of our world is the fallout of the tragic choice of the first humans. The great writer G.K. Chesterton once put it like this. He said, in a fairy tale, an incomprehensible happiness rests upon an incomprehensible condition. He says, a box is opened and all evils fly out. A lamp is lit, and love flies away. A flower is plucked, and human lives are forfeited. An apple is eaten, and the hope of God is gone. Friends, this is the biblical story. God created this world to be a place of goodness, beauty, and love. He put the first humans in a garden and said, incomprehensible happiness is yours forever. Just don't eat this tree. For the day you eat it is the day you die. An incomprehensible happiness rested upon an incomprehensible condition because God never told them the reason not to eat the tree. He simply warned them what would happen if they did. Now, we get really upset with that because we want to understand why God didn't tell them why. But God was not inviting them to understand. He was inviting them 
to trust. That's the point. They didn't trust, and the result of that was what we call death. Not just physical death, although it includes that. It was the death of love because it was the death of trust. And therefore, it was the death of our ability to consistently choose God, goodness, beauty, and love. And the result of that is what we call evil. Friends, um, here's what this means. The, the Bible, let me summarize it by pointing to what Paul says um, in this passage. He says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Let me summarize all of this for us like this. The naturalist story says that death is natural. The Eastern story says death is an illusion, but the biblical story says death is an enemy. Now, let me ask you, which one of these makes better sense of how you experience death? For instance, what would you say to the families of those who were shot dead in Nashville a couple of weeks ago? Or the families of anybody who's perished due to gun violence? Would you say, hey, this is natural? Would you say, look, this is just an illusion? Or does it feel truer to say, this is evil, because death is an enemy. Friends, the biblical story shows us a world in which incomprehensible goodness, beauty, and love were lost because an incomprehensible condition was broken. It's a story that says death is not natural. It's not an illusion. Death is an enemy. It is utterly and inimically opposed to goodness, beauty, and love because death is not the way it's supposed to be. And that leads to our second question. We've just asked, what is death? But secondly, what does God do about it? You know, as I mentioned just a moment ago, the, the main response by far throughout the history of the world to death is to, is to put all our hope in escaping the body and escaping this world. You see this in the ancient Greeks. You see it in Eastern spirituality. You see it in Western religion, even secular society. It, you know, it's really interesting to me that um, there have been all these TV shows about the afterlife. Shows like Forever or The Good Place, one of my personal favorites. There's another TV show called Upload. And the basic premise of this show is that when you die, you can upload your consciousness to a digital afterlife. It's all the same response. Friends, if the best we can hope for is to escape the body or escape this world, then understand that is not a defeat of death. That is a compromise with death. In the end, death still wins the battle because if our body is a battlefield, then it's like us walking into battle trying to win back enemy-occupied territory. But we can't do it, so we just retreat. And the enemy stands there in our house laughing at us. If the best we can hope for is escape from the body and from this world, then death wins because death still holds the battlefield. But how does the God of the Bible respond to death? Well, notice what Paul says. He says, death came through a man, for in Adam all die. Now remember the story. Adam broke that one condition, don't eat from this tree. And because of his disobedience, because he failed to trust God, now death has entered into the world and taken all of us captive. It's taken all of us captive. That's the story, but it's not the whole story. Look at the whole verse. It says, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Now, two big things to notice about this. First, what is God's answer to the problem of death? Not escape from the body, but resurrection of the body. That is a radically different response 
than anything else the world has ever offered humanity. Instead of saying, okay, death, you can have the body, you can have the world, we're just going to upload our consciousness to the cloud. Instead, resurrection says, no, we're taking back the body, we're taking back the world. Death, thou foul enemy, thou art now banished hence. In other words, God himself enters the battlefield and says, no, I am taking this back. So first, God's response to death is not escape from the body, it's not retreat, but resurrection. But second, the way God does this is by entering into the story and reliving the story. Notice how Paul puts this. He says that death came how? Through a man. But if that's the case, how does resurrection and life and renewal come into the world? Through a man. Death came into the world through a man, Adam, but life, resurrection, and renewal come into the world through another man, Jesus. In fact, later in this passage, Paul calls Jesus the last Adam. Jesus is the last Adam. That means that God himself enters into the story of this world and and undoes all of the tragedies and relives the story the way it was supposed to be lived. He takes Adam's place. He takes our place. He undoes all the tragedy and lives the story the way it was supposed to be lived. And in so living, he gathers all things up into himself and unites them all in the perfect resolution for which the story was originally meant. Let me give you a very imperfect example of this, but one which I hope um, gives us just a, a picture of this. In the third Harry Potter book, um, the young boy wizard Harry discovers that he has a godfather named Sirius Black. Now, Sirius was unjustly imprisoned um, for the death of Harry's parents, but he escapes from prison, and now these ghostly figures called Dementors are hunting him down. One night at the end of the book, um, Harry and his friends, Ron and Hermione, experience a series of tragedies. First, a magical bird named Buckbeak is unjustly executed. Second, a werewolf attacks them. And third, um, Harry finds Sirius wounded and lying unconscious on a lakeshore. He tries to rescue him, but then Dementors attack them and start sucking the soul out of both of them. But they're rescued by a powerful yet mysterious wizard. But alas, Sirius is recaptured and scheduled to be taken back to prison. Harry is in despair. The whole story is falling apart. Everything is unraveling. But then Professor Dumbledore instructs Hermione to utilize a peculiar magical instrument known as a time turner. And and, um, this is a magical device that allows Hermione and Harry to go back in time as a second Hermione and a second Harry to re-enter the story and, and relive it, undo all the tragedies and bring about a different ending to the story. And as they're getting ready to go back in, Dumbledore tells them perhaps more than one life can be saved. So they go back into the story and they, they succeed. They undo all the tragedies. Buckbeak is saved. The, the werewolf is foiled. They rescue Sirius. And most of all, Harry himself becomes that powerful yet mysterious magician and wizard who rescues them all and saves the day. But it's not the first Harry that does this. The first Harry is lying on the lakeshore defeated and having his soul sucked out by a Dementor. No, it's the second Harry who becomes the powerful wizard who rescues them all and saves the day. And more than one life is saved. Friends, that is, like I said, a very imperfect example 
of what's happening here. But it's still a picture of what Jesus did for us. Jesus is the last Adam who re-enters the story, who undoes all the tragedies, and who lives the story the way it's supposed to be lived so that the ending for which it was meant can be brought about so that all things could be united in him. Jesus is the last Adam who saves the day. In the first garden, the first Adam rejected God's will that he should live But the last Adam in a garden called Gethsemane embraced God's will that he should die. The first Adam um, ate the fruit of the forbidden tree, but the last Adam took the judgment for that by hanging on a tree. The first Adam brought death into the world through his disobedience, but the last Adam brought life into the world through his sacrificial death and resurrection from the dead. Friends, Jesus is the last Adam. He's the one who re-enters the story, undoes all the tragedies, and unites all things in himself. He restores what is broken. He recovers what is lost. He redeems what is dying. And many, 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 many more than one life is saved as a result. Now, what does all of that mean for us? Well, that leads to our last question. We've asked, what is death? We've asked, what does God do about it? But lastly, what does this mean for us? You know, Paul, in this passage, gives us two very specific ways that this changes our lives. And the first is this. This means that we can have rest for today. At the very beginning of our passage, Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Now, the whole point of this passage is that Jesus has been raised. And if that's the case, Paul is saying that you are no longer, notice how he says it, in your sins. What does that mean? Well, look at what he says right after this. As in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Do you see the contrast? You can either be in your sins or you can be in Christ. Or we could put it like this. You can either be in the story of the old Adam or you can be in the story of the last Adam, Jesus. The first Adam, the old Adam, didn't trust God. He trusted himself for his ultimate happiness. To be in the story of the old Adam is to have your ultimate happiness, identity, and destiny defined by your performance in this world. And everything in our culture reinforces that story in our lives. You have to be the hero of your own story. You have to be a good person and do the right thing. You have to be on the right side of history. You have to define and express your authentic self to the world around you. You have to construct your best life now. All of that stress and pressure, it's like dementors sucking our soul out, and we have no power in ourselves to resist that story. What we do have, however, is another story that's available to us, the story of the last Adam, Jesus. To be in the story of the last Adam is to have your ultimate happiness, identity, and destiny defined no longer by what you do in your performance, but what Jesus does in his performance for you. That means that if you're connected to Jesus by faith, you are now caught up in a different story so that everything that's true of Jesus now becomes true of you. That means you're set free from the performance trap. 
That means it no longer matters if you do well, and it also no longer matters if you fail to do well. It doesn't matter what you do at all anymore. Your happiness, identity, and destiny is not defined by your performance and what you do, but by Jesus' performance and what he did, his perfect life, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, so that now you're caught up into a different story with a different hero, and this is a story you can rest in because this is a hero you can rest in. Do you ever long for just a little rest from anxiety, depression, loneliness, addiction, stress, pressure, and all the other dementors that plague us? Jesus, the last Adam, gives us rest for today. But second, notice what Paul says. He says, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That phrase, fallen asleep, is referring to people who have died. Paul is saying that the resurrection of Jesus is the first fruits of God's victory over death. What does that mean? This phrase, first fruits, is a farming word, and it means two things. First, it's a preview of the whole harvest, but second, first fruits is a promise of more to come. It's a preview of the whole harvest and a promise of more to come. When Jesus rose physically from the dead with a glorious body, it was a preview and a promise of what would happen one day, not just to us, but to the whole cosmos. Or we could say it like this. The resurrection of Jesus is a foretaste of a future reality that makes a difference in our present reality. The resurrection is a foretaste of a future reality, and yet it makes a difference in our present reality. Jesus, the last Adam, gives us rest for today, but he also gives us hope for tomorrow. Not just hope for ourselves, but hope for the whole cosmos, this whole material, physical world. That means that Christians, of all people, have far more incentive and motivation to work, to labor for the good of this world. Did you notice what Paul says at the very end of this whole chapter on the resurrection? If the resurrection is true, and it is, what does Paul say the big takeaway is? Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, he says, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. He's saying, look, the Christian hope is not pie in the sky by and by. It's not us escaping the body and escaping the world. If the resurrection of Jesus is true, that means that your labor is not in vain, that we can have hope for this world. That means that Christians of all people have more incentive to work for the good of this world, to work for justice, to work for the environment, to work for the poor, the oppressed, the addicted, the enslaved, those who are troubled and addicted and in bondage. Why? Because we have been caught up into the story of Jesus, the last Adam. There's an old story about a group of mountain climbers who were all tied together by a rope. One day they were high up on a mountain, but then all of a sudden the unthinkable happened. The climber on the bottom lost his footing and fell. And as he was hurtling downward, all the other climbers had this sickening realization of what was about to happen. One by one, they each started getting yanked off the mountain. There was nothing they could do about it because they were all connected together and the weight of all the fallen climbers was too great for them. None of them could withstand it. None, that is, except the last climber, the man on top. While all the other climbers were being torn off the mountain, he took his pickaxe, dug it into the side of the mountain as deep as he could and held on 
And while they were all being torn off the mountain, finally when the rope ran out, there was a loud snap as it tore into his skin. You could hear his ribs cracking as the weight of all the other climbers literally crushed him. But while the weight of all the other climbers was pulling him down, he pulled them up. Slowly but surely, one agonizing step at a time, the, the man on top pulled all the other climbers to safety. Dear ones, we are all connected to the old Adam in our sin, and none of us can withstand the weight of our fallenness. But Jesus, the last Adam, is connected to us in his humanity so that everyone who is connected to him by faith can be pulled up to safety because Jesus is the man on top. He was crushed by the weight of our fallenness so that we could be saved by the strength of his life. When you are connected by faith to Jesus, that means that you can have rest for today, you can have hope for tomorrow, it means that your labor is not in vain because death is a defeated enemy. The poet George Herbert once said that death used to be an executioner, but now because of the resurrection, he's just a gardener. And his hatchet has been turned into a pruning knife. It can only make you better. Friends, are you a part of this story, the story of Jesus, the last Adam? Let him pull you up into his story so that you can rest in him and so that you can labor in hope. Would you pray with me? Abba, Father, we praise you today for our hope in you is sure, for you have given us the resurrection of Jesus as a preview and a promise, a foretaste of a future reality that makes a difference in our present reality. Lord Jesus, we thank you for taking our place in the story so that we could be caught up in your story. We pray today that you would help us to, to allow ourselves to be caught up more and more in your story, that we may rest in you and that we may labor in hope in this world, knowing that our labor is not in vain. Make us vessels of your story to the world around us, for we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.